Previously on Storyological. <laughs> when you go see Savannah, and you're like, cut my hair in that just after sunset look. Like, just rumpled and ready. Isn't the rumpled more the morning? Well, maybe I'm a late sleeper. So we're talking <laughs> about vampires. You're, yeah. you're describing a vampire's yeah. just after sunset look. He's got the <gasps> bed head. Oh, I had a sudden flashback to uh, that first time you see Angel in Buffy. And what a tiny, tiny young man he looks like. So thin and vampire-like. And then by the end of the seventh season, he's all like, he's like Kevin Spacey in Baby Driver. He's all like roided up. No, it's a it's a common misconception when men put on girth in Hollywood. People assume it's muscle. Mm. It's not. It's bagels. <laughs> There's just bagels taped to their body. <laughs> No, I'm imagining like a suicide bomber vest, but with bagels taped in Sure, it. sure. The next time you watch Bones and you see David Boyanas, just keep in mind underneath his shirt is bagels. Uh, yeah. It doesn't make him any less tasty. Ooh, well punned. Yeah. Mm, ladies, take a bite out of that. Mm. <laughs> this is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick this week is called The Sweet Sop by Ingrid Persot, and I found it in Granta because they are publishing all of the winners of the Commonwealth Fiction Prize, and this is the winner from the Caribbean, the Caribbean, one of those. Publishing it online or publishing it in their dead trees? Online, but possibly also in their dead trees, I do not know. Uh, if it's online, people can go get it. They can, they can just run off and read it right now. Three, two, one, go. Yeah, we, we, maybe we should tell people that sometimes who don't really ever look at our website and just yeah. listen to the podcast. And what I like about Granta's website is that they tell you how long it's going to read as well. So they have up at the top, this is a 14 minute read. Like can, medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's good for me because I want to know if I'm sitting, if I'm settling into an hour's reading, I want to yeah. know up front, I want to be able to go get a drink, go to the bathroom, settle into it. I don't want that to be a surprise and then do 20 you, minutes in. Do you attend your own reading as though it were cinema <laughs> and like once you start uh you only have a certain amount of time and you're not allowed to use the bathroom well, i mean not always but i enjoy it if i can read a story straight through without being disturbed by my biological requirements uh, yeah so the sweet soap is a story about victor and his obsession with nutella but obviously <laughs> Not really about his obsession but, with Nutella. dot, 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 not that. <laughs> yeah, but not that. But actually that. Um, Nutella is how the story starts, though, and also how it ends. And the thing that made me pick this story over anything else I read recently was the way Ingrid loops between those two points in such a satisfying manner. Like I feel like... A diamond dealer. I don't know if they have a proper name. Probably they do. But a diamond dealer who has just plucked this perfect diamond out of the bag and holds it up to the light. And every facet inside reflects so purely the essence of the story. And it's got this perfect clarity and perfect shape, totally in harmony with itself. And that is all because of Nutella. Sort of. Um... So Victor and his obsession with Nutella is how the story opens. Um, uh, But then Ingrid reaches back into the story of how he becomes so obsessed with it and how it's all intermingled with his dad and that he never knew his dad growing up. 
In fact, Reggie, the dad, comes into his life only at the point in which he's dying. And the story follows their difficult sort of obtuse relationship that grows and falters and hesitates and blossoms through the final few months and weeks of Reggie's life. And chocolate is the central part of this because toward the end, Reggie loses his appetite and chocolate is the only thing that will tempt him to eat anything at all. But his partner, Kim, doesn't want him to eat it. You know, the doctors have said it's not good for him. And so Victor becomes his secret chocolate dealer, supplying him with sweets and crunchies and Twixes and Hershey's Kisses and the litany of chocolate bars uh, goes on through the story and becomes a kind of a poetry in itself. And then at the end, Nutella becomes the, the root for Victor to finally give in to Reggie's desire to die, to finally say, okay, I will crush these pills for you. I will help you out because you're clearly in such pain and these are your final moments and I just you want them to be over and I want that I want to help you with that and so he crushes them and he puts them in the Nutella and as he does that and as the dad sends him away and says okay this is this is great it unravels that beginning and you understand finally why why Victor goes and buys 30 jars of Nutella at, at their time at the at the equivalent of the Costco you know, why he's so obsessed with this stuff, because it's where he's storing both his guilt and his relationship with his father that he doesn't seem to know how to process. I spent a lot of time when I finished it wondering why start with the bitterness of his obsession with chocolate, the bitterness in the sense of like his mom has given him a lot of grief for it. Um, but he seems kind of okay with it, except he feels like he's getting fat. And he says, he, he calls it a kind of dread that began with his old man Reggie's death. And by the time I got to the end of the story, and that moment between them when Victor crushes the pills into the Nutella so that his dad can peacefully go his own way, um, it's like that earlier bitterness I have forgotten. And it was only when I read it again where I was like, oh, yeah, the beginning of the story where there seems to be like what you said of putting all of his guilt and his desire for relationship with his father into chocolate. That's all at the beginning, whereas the ending feels like it's all at peace. And I wondered why, why structure it that way? And part of what I thought is that after he gives his dad suicide, um, Victor says that he's provided his dad ease. He's provided ease for him. And he also says, and in time for me. So it made me just think, I think I'm so, I, I felt like Ingrid had in that structure of beginning with the bitterness of the, we'll get back to this, but the, the sop with which he has replaced his father, which is by consuming copious amounts of chocolate, mm-hmm. um, that she'd done a neat trick in that if she had began the story with the introduction of the father, and followed the son who had been missing his father into the bitterness of coming into his father's life at the end, into the sweetness of connecting with his father at his death, it might feel not quite cliche, not quite sentimental. But the idea that at the moment of your parents' death that you have not connected with, that you would feel at ease, or even the idea that two weeks later you would feel at ease, 
would not maybe be true. And there's something she's done in this structure that she can begin in the bitterness of the aftermath, and yet through the telling of what came before, speak to the peace that Victor will find after the beginning of this story. In fact, it feels like Victor is narrating the story and end it finding the peace that his father had found at his death. Mm. I think I must have read a hundred stories about a, a grown child caring for their parent in their moments of dying over the last few years. And after a while, they often begin to drift into each other. And this one, you know, sometimes I feel like I... Maybe I'm jaded, maybe maybe I'm reading too analytically, maybe there are no more good stories out there. All of these things go through my mind sometimes. And yet when I come across a story like this, that in its structure creates, like unpicks that narrative, packs it with so much discomfort and unease, and then resolves it at the end in a way that is so cathartic, uh, it's just, it makes it jump from the page. Civil Twilight is the name of a video, YouTube video, that John Green put out uh, a week or so ago, which is a video of a sunset in which John Green is narrating the, as you would say, the, the jadedness with which people generally encounter sunsets and especially encounter attempts to pull at the mythic, you know, internal beauty of a sunset. Uh, And he reads a poem by E.E. Cummings, which definitely captures the beauty and mystery of a sunset and the dying light of day. And he points out that one of the ways E.E. Cummings gets away with it, if one wants to use that language, is by centering the perspective of the story in a six-year-old child Mm. and letting that be how we experience the sunset. And John Green is good at what he does, and by (laughs) centering his experience of that sunset inside the words of Ian Cummings and then also inside the words of Toni Morrison and inside the words of science which describes sunsets and inside his own self-consciousness about making a video about a sunset, he also gets the mystery and wonder of sunsets. And I I did, I spent just like you a lot of time, I did not a lot of time, I had this thought pierced through my brain near the end of the story thinking about Civil Twilight and how in this story you have that kind of dying light of a long invisible father through the eyes of the child that he abandoned, Mm. who is now fully grown. And in that bitterness, in that discord, you, she, she's able to, uh, she's able to overcome any kind of jadedness that we might bring to the story by putting the jadedness into the narrator Mm. and having that narrator's jadedness overcome by experiencing his father's transformation from a non-entity into a person, into a suffering person, into a suffering person that wants to leave. Mm. The movement of Reggie's character, both through his dying arc and through how Victor sees him, is you know, part of the joy and the pain of this story. Because she doesn't make it sweet, even though it's called the sweet sop. I've got to admit that when I first picked the story and first read it, I misread it as the sweet shop. Much better when I went back and realized what the title actually was. Yes, I also read it as the sweet shop a gazillion times. Uh, (laughs) Even to the point where I was like, I'm just going to sit down and write down the definition of sop so that I can carry that with me at all times and (laughs) stop replacing that word. Um, 
I guess part of what I enjoy about the story is like I was saying the journey that Reggie that we see Reggie go through and the complexity that that lends to their relationship him and Victor because it's not easy it's not pleasant he doesn't seem to in the main part it's not an enjoyable experience visiting and caring for his father there are these flashes these moments which are often triggered by the illicit chocolate that he brings where Reggie is able to reminisce Um, stories of his mother or stories of his childhood which Victor kind of clings to but in between are these really trying interactions where nothing he does or says or nowhere he sits in the room is really acceptable to Reggie he's always in the wrong place or the glass is always too full or too empty the egg is always too hard or too soft and you kind of get this beautiful complexity in the relationship that it's not easy for either of them and that you begin to get a sense of Reggie's desperation because interspersed with all of this complaining is the occasional demand or request for Victor to call him dad and it's so heartbreaking that it comes in these moments of pain and moments like right after he's just hurled abuse at him. Um, There's a book I'm reading right now called The Rest is Noise, which is a book by the New Yorker music critic Alex Ross that is about really the the 20th century as heard through classical music. And there's this awesome bit where he quotes this guy Will Marion Cook giving advice to Duke Ellington. And the advice that Will Marion Cook gives to Duke Ellington is to reverse your figures and take the notes of your theme and spell them in inversion or retrograde I know what that means, but I have no idea what that means. And earlier you were talking about the diamond shape of the story and and how she loops back to Nutella. The thing that really hums to me in this story is the way that she's centered on a theme. She's centered on these notes. And she's reversing the spelling Mm. of those notes through the story. And to get to that reversal, she's spelling them in different ways throughout. So you have like the kind of central thing of father and son and then sop, like you know, a thing that is used to replace some need, but which isn't really what you need. And so it's like the father wants to be there for his son, but the son doesn't know that at the beginning. We come to know that, especially when we read it again, and we get Mm -hmm. to lines like where Victor says of his childhood, somehow he, he being dad, somehow he used to know when big things were happening and show up. (laughs) You know, this kid's father is absent, and yet every time the kid has a big day, his dad just appears out of nowhere. Right. And his mom seems to not be terribly surprised that he's there. So, you know, you, you, you begin to sense that the father would like to be present, but he can't. So he's appearing as best he can to try to fulfill that need, but it's not enough. But the son's just bitter. Like, I just, I just, the son is bitter at his father's absence. And it starts getting spelled out in different ways. Because once the, the, the son is in the father's presence, he hates his father's presence. It's no good. Now that he's here, I hate him. And then the sop comes back because the son still hates the dad, doesn't like him, but starts bringing him sweetness just because the dad wants it. And that that sop, that sweetness that isn't quite real, mm. triggers the father into being more present, like you were saying, telling stories about his past. And then metaphorically, he's like more present because we get more of who he is. But of course, the story's got to finish spelling it backwards. So the son who lamented his father's absence in order to connect with his father and actually do him the sweetness and kindness has to allow his father to actually leave him forever. forever. 
And that's what I love so much because even because it's it's like even that is a sop in the you, you, what I love about the story more than anything, like you said, is understanding the father and understanding the father wanted to be there with his son and wanted a connection. Like you said, he keeps asking for him, when are you going to call me dad? Mm-hmm. And even even that thing where the son gives him his death, gives him his dignity in a, in a sense, while it brings them closer and gives them a connection, in a way it can never really give the dad what he wanted, which is a life with his son. And yet for a moment, even that, that little sop is kind of sweet. Right, it's enough in that moment. Yeah. One of my favorite lines is toward the end when he says, I understood that this was a moment to come out strong. This was a lint moment. Even his wilfulness would melt with this fancy Swiss chocolate. And, and I love, I, I don't even remember what that's in response to, but it's in this dark, dying time. And yet he's coming at it with this humor and kind of joyful abandonment and, and adoption of of the marketing of whatever these different chocolates are, right? Yeah, oh, how different is Lindt to a Crunchy or to a Cadbury's? Only in the way that they are marketed to us, really. But that, she uses that, and Victor uses that, and it means something to him, and I love him for that, for really, for really believing in that and sharing it with us. I think that Coming back to the structure of this and the the looping through Nutella and back to Nutella, what works more than that or what underpins that is that chocolate is both the making and the undoing of their relationship, right? Yeah, yeah. It is the thing that prizes his open and it is the thing that sends him off into his final resting place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My pick for this week is The Swimmer Among the Stars by Kanishk Tharoor. It is in his collection of the same name, which I believe is not quite out yet. Uh, no, no, it's definitely out. This is publication 6th of April, 2017. I discovered this book in a bookshop called All the Books? No. I discovered this in a bookshop called Any Amount of Books with Neil Harrison, the former editor of Strange Horizons that was visiting us and uh, we had a lovely time with him, and I went with him off to a bookshop that he said, in the basement, there's a shelf where they have ARCs, advanced release copies of books. He did make it sound a little bit like a secret witch's, you know, ingredient shelf, where if you were in the know, you could get the good shit. To do magic. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Uh... And he pulled this book down and said, I read some of this guy's stories. It's good. You want it? I was like, yep, I'll take it. And now we're going to talk about one of the stories. Uh, so. So thanks, Neil. Yes. Thanks, Neil. Uh, Kanishk. Uh, so in this collection, there are stories about elephants at sea, the United Nations in exile on a space station. There's a story about a National Geographic-like photojournalist who's getting grilled, kind of, on his photography by one of his subjects. Uh, there's also a story of a bunch of international ships that get stuck in the ice like one gets stuck in the ice down in the Antarctic and then another ship from another country comes and then they get stuck and then another one comes and they get stuck there's also a photojournalist in that story I bet that would pair well with the Great Orc story that we read um maybe there are some comparisons to Borges right here on the back of this book uh, also Calvino there's a Calvino epigram and that that's all fine but uh, I also thought when I was reading this story, uh, this reminds me of Borges, sure. 
but also Ted Chang by way of like Zadie Smith and Jane Austen because there's a fantastic depth and breadth to his ideas and conceits. There's a historical and scientific consciousness in his stories, but is married often to a social and political consciousness that reminds me of Austen or Smith. In this story, uh, we begin with this sentence. As a rule, the last speaker of a language no longer uses it. Right, you already get a little bit of the Austin and the, the certainty of that line and its deliverance. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course, the, first, uh, the famous first line of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. So this story is about the last speaker of a language, and it is about some ethnographers who have decided to visit her and to record it. And the story turns around their relationship, and it is made up of fantastic observations of what it might be like to be the last speaker of a language done in a way that I think of as like storybook. So you get these fantastic images of like this last speaker saying, yeah, sometimes I talk to my teacup because who else am I, who else am I going to have a conversation with in my awesome language? Um, and that's, that's cool. But what I love about the evolution of the relationship is in the way that the depiction of the last speaker and what she chooses to convey to the ethnographers and what they choose to be interested in come in conflict in really interesting ways. So she sings to them some songs in which she tells stories that are in many ways about the pursuit of something and the inability to grasp it. And the ethnographers continue to really only be interested in the structures and what she's saying. And occasionally they'll be like, we don't really care about the meaning. It's okay. It's fine. We'll figure it out later. Um, what is set up to be a conceit of these people coming to learn about language because this thing is interesting that they're trying to learn becomes entirely the story of the person that is the last speaker. And the thing that you fall in love with reading the story is the imagination of this person, as in all the things that she is describing, thinking, expressing, but which they can't understand, but we do. You know, a very smart friend of ours, a buddy of ours called Sarah, said to us that there are two types of story one that drives towards some kind of climax like the first story that we spoke about today that the climax is in that emotional unbundling that happens at the end of the story yes. and the other kind of story <laughs> which is about a sustained arousal that never reaches a climax but that in each sentence in each paragraph in each idea reaches a kind of a a depth and perspicacity that is intensely pleasurable and that's what this story was to me like it sort of has no beginning and has no end it's just it's this view of of the last speaker and her interactions with the ethnographers and yet inside of that it makes you feel so many beautiful, warm, sad, complicated, happy, distressed things that uh, I found it intensely pleasurable. I, I love that you found it pleasurable. Uh, I might disagree that it has no beginning or end. Um, because like I, I feel like there is the boy. So story, ethnographers come to talk to last speaker. Great. Last speaker sings some songs, one of which traditional folk song, one of which she makes up, bam, immediately. Describes her character, 
describes the language. You get these depictions of her imagination and her trying to come up with words. And when she's trying to figure out, okay, I want to change my folk song from bride leaves groom on ultimately fruitless quest up the mountain where when he finally catches her she turns to stone into story of bride is like whatever i'm gonna be an astronaut and she runs off and finds a rocket and the last speaker is "Ah, there's no word for rocket in my language i'll just use some verbal suffixes so i can get fiery flight in void into void great Oh, wait, there's no word for astronaut. What what word can I use for astronaut? Oh, yeah, swimmer among the stars. What about satellites, invisible lightning moths? The stories that the last speaker is telling in her songs are all about the pursuit of some knowledge and pursuit of something, which ultimately becomes um, elusive and uncatchable. And that boy that I refer to, she sees this boy at the very beginning of the story, this boy loitering outside, with these shoes that light up red, his hands in his pockets. And he hangs about in the story throughout. And when you say there's no climax, I totally get what you mean. Like, there's no, there's no moment where someone dies, someone leaves, someone goes away per se. And yet, Kanishk has used this image of the boy, which is an image that he, uh, that he delineates in total clarity. The boy is totally clear. And yet, The image, the meaning, is ambiguous. And at the end of the story, she sees, the last speaker sees the boy out there. And when he sees her, he turns and runs away. And the story ends with this line, At her gaze, he drops from the wall and runs down the village path, red flashes in the dark, leaving her wondering if there was ever a time when she knew his name. That, that hits me as much as someone dying at the end of the story. That, for me, is a climax where it has begun, the, the story has begun in this very distant, certain voice that is away from the last speaker and is about people coming to study her. And it ends entirely in her experience. The focus on the boy with, to do with the ending, I think, is... It's exactly where where my mind was. Like I have a whole section of notes entitled "What is the boy?" question mark um, Because I didn't mean to say or imply by my comment before that there wasn't a sense of completion or a sense of an ending to this. Not at all. It really does feel very satisfying when it ends when the boy leaves, because you're left with this kind of feeling like of thinking what is he in the story what is he to her how do I make sense of him and what I settled on in the end was like he is a a cipher a representation of the future the future that doesn't include her that doesn't make sense to her that that won't reach out and bring her into it like he is a kind of representation that her line in many ways ends with her or her language ends with her I wanted to talk about the ethnographers because of what they, like they are the people that represent the idea that her language is dead, that she has no one left to commune with in this language, that having them there is what demonstrates her isolation. And and that for me was a lot of what this story was about, this sense of isolation that she had, and also a sense of responsibility like, she's the last speaker. What is her responsibility to pass this on to the ethnographers? She, she's excited about that responsibility, but she does seem to, to feel like it's important. 
And then on the other side of this, the ethnographers think seeming to think that they have a responsibility to record um, and to analyze, but they don't take on a responsibility to commune, to communicate, to understand. They don't really care about what she says. And that for me is the fundamental sadness that's at the heart of this story. The, the quote that I, I wrote down, I love when she asked, why do you need to talk to me? And they said, it means something more if it comes from you. Mm -hmm. they, they seem to accept it as a responsibility. I need to record this language, but they're not communicating with her. And even though they say it means something if it comes from you, it's us, the reader, who connects with the you. They, they never attempt to connect with the you. Mm. Um, the Austin-ness to me is that like, Jane Austen was really good at deploying certainty in a way that left you feeling deeply uncertain about things. Or, and you know, she could satirize the structures of society or even more beloved to me, the presumptions of perspectives. And there's so much presumption in the ethnographers. This is what we do. Mm. And the last speaker is questioning, why do you want to record me? Why do you want to do this? Something of Austin to me was there in the fact that the last speaker is making them tea. They're having conversation in what is basically a sitting room. It is a domestic story. And yet inside of that space, he's pulling out a galaxy of history and loss and confusion and conflict in a way that, in a way that like Austin, I feel both very comforted and somehow very certain of the vague machinery that's going in place. Like I said, I feel a little closer to history and to people. Mm. The language that the last speaker has and the preponderance of suffixes that and the way in which she creates these new words to describe things that didn't exist when she learned her language, like astronaut and rocket. It made me think about writing exercises and constraining your own vocabulary when you're describing things to reach new ways of understanding and, and unpacking ideas. But also it made me think of Randall Monroe's Thing Explainer, where he tries to explain, amongst other things, spaceflight using only the 1,000 most common words in the English language. Uh, and so he calls rockets upgoers. Now, Kanish's description is much more poetic, and Swimmers Amongst the Stars is, is also probably more poetic than whatever um, Randall Monroe's definition is. But they, they come from the same kind of place of creativity, I think. I only have these tools available to me. How can I describe this concept that is new or different or takes place in a world that is tangential to where this language comes from and i i really love what happens to language when we make it do that a couple of last sentences um that of course are not going to be sentences at all uh but that that thing of the the thing explainer i i loved part of the the kind of social political historical consciousness of the story it's in lines like this where the last speaker says no matter how innovative she is with her language it does not have the force to take possession of an idea in later years they will say that her term swimmer among the stars means astronaut they will never say that astronaut means swimmer among the stars that for me is just it's just one of those things just a collection of lines that blows open the world and i'm like Right, like language, history, like taking possession of an idea can be understood and whether you say this word means this or this word means this. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of this, 
Uh, I want to read this passage that is describing some of the last speaker's language. Her language boasted many verbs for which no simple equivalents exist in the common language. For example, this means to be afraid of seeing time pass. This means to tell bedtime stories in the depths of winter. This is the action of stirring a kind of gravy in a pot. This also denotes the motion of a pig rooting around in the mud. This refers to the way light splinters against a range of mountains at dusk. This describes in one word how mountains gain mass and shape at dawn. This means to feel strange in an unfamiliar place. This means to be patient for spring, as does this and this. If she remembered all or some of these words, the last speaker's testimony would be a little more refined. Unfortunately, she doesn't remember them. Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to talk about all the stories you've loved this week or even all the things that you've loved about these stories. Uh, So, if you would like to talk to us, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storyological. That's story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can find and like us on Facebook. That is at facebook.com slash storyological. And if you have enjoyed uh, this episode, then you can find us on iTunes uh, and leave us a review. And that helps other people find us. And for show notes, links to past episodes, interviews with writers like Adam Ehrlich Sachs and Sam J. Miller. Uh, for appropriate and inappropriate gifts, all of that you can find at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Emma's, Emma's really affected by the Nutella right now. I love that story a lot. It made me sob into my hands when I found it. It's one of those stories I feel like a better person after I read it. One of the bits where he starts talking about whether or not he should lie to his dad. For example, just call him dad. That reminded me of when my mom uh, was sick and on her own way out of this world. And I remember near the end, she started talking about heaven. It was like, is this heaven? And is everyone here? And I was like, yep. Yep, this is heaven. Yep. Everyone's here. There's, there's granddaddy over there. Like she seemed really happy with it, and I felt really weird. But I mean, when someone's eyes closed and they're kind of in pain, and they're like, "Is everyone here that I love? What are you gonna be?" No, no, I'm sorry. It's just me. You're just in your house and you're dying. Uh, it's not going well. I'm concerned really about the outcome of this. I don't think there's anything afterwards. Good luck with that. Have have a good time. No, no, you don't say that. You say yes.